The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 88 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Having recently revised my will so that I won't be cremated upon my death, but have my geeky corpse dipped entirely in chromium ink, I'm Adam. I'm going to one-up you, Adam, and I am going to dip myself in prism foil. I am Mike. <laughs> All right. Well, we have a fun announcement, actually, to kick off the show this time, because our home for all these years, the Retro Network, is going through a little bit of a transformation. It's now Geekster Magazine. Very fitting, right, for all you geeks out there. I actually had nothing to do with the name, but I love it. They're kicking off a new era, celebrating all things geek then and now. We are actually inviting you, though to participate in their first big kickoff event, which is Comic Book Month. That's right. They said, everybody's listening to Wizards. We want to do more about comics. So throughout the month of March, all the content on Geekster is going to be comic book related. And the thing is, we want you to contribute for a chance to win a vintage comics prize pack, okay? There's sealed copies of Wizard. There's comics that you're going to want in your collection, things like that. Now, the reason we want you to be a part of this is, you know, Mickey at the Retro Network, now Geekster, said, you know, you have that origin story segment. It feels like a lot of people could share their origin story just write up an article of at least 500 words or create a video or however you want to present it and tell everybody how you first discovered comic books. Was it toys? Was it cartoons? Was it movies? Was it the books themselves? Did you have somebody in your life that put a comic book in your hand, right? That is something that we want to hear from you. You might not all be guests on the podcast, but you can at least contribute to Comic Book Month and we can hear your stories and you just might win something. But that's not the only way to enter. You can also create an article or video declaring your or Mount Rushmore of DC or Marvel Comics characters, comic book villains, superhero toys, video games, or any other category. Or show us why you are the ultimate super collector by sharing your collection of action figures, trading cards, original art, or other collectibles. I, I would really like to see that stuff. All you have to do is go to the retronetwork.com, click the submit an article link below the Geekster header at the top of the homepage and fill out the submission form. All submissions must be in by March 23rd, 2024. That's right. So we're giving you a heads up now. It's still the retronetwork.com is still the web address for the site. Eventually that will become Geekster. But when you get there, you'll see a big banner. It just says Geekster. And right below it, there's a little thing that just says submit an article. Now, at the end of the month, our panel of Geekster judges will choose one article or video that entertain them most and award that individual the vintage comic book prize pack. It's going to have all sorts of 80s and 90s comic Comics goodies, sealed trading card packs, maybe an action figure. Like 
I say, some sealed copies of Wizard and other things. Here's the thing, though. Due to rising shipping costs, like this year with the United States Postal Service, this contest is only open to residents of the United States this time around. So apologies to Mike and his Canadian buddies. And I know we have a lot of international listeners. I'm sorry, but we've done contests in the past where we tried to ship things to people and it got to like 70 80 to even just get it to canada and i'm like oh no like we made a mistake so unfortunately but this is the thing though if you just want to share your comic book fandom you just want to be a part of it feel free to submit an article or a video however you want to do it you know post a video on your youtube channel send us the link we'd love to share it we want to hear from you you know this is just about kind of building the community and having some fun together and the added bonus is somebody might win a prize as well but just get ready for some super fun in march with the geekster comic book month so stay tuned we'll be posting stuff on our social media feeds as well i think i'm just gonna move to the u.s so i can apply All right. Well, we're talking about getting stuff in the mail and Wizard was getting all sorts of letters all day long. That's right. We're going to open up Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. As a follow-up to our recent interview with Eric Larson, Craig Powell from Salt Lake City, Utah asks, Dear Wizard, it's been said that if you put a thousand monkeys at a thousand typewriters, they'd eventually produce all the works of William Shakespeare. But if you gave a thousand monkeys a thousand sets of art supplies, would they eventually produce all the comics of Eric Larson? I don't know if that's a slam on Eric Larson or not. (laughs) Okay, so here's how Wizard replied. Maybe. Larson thinks it's possibility, but adds... If only those monkeys had the exposed brains of a crazed historical dictator sticking out of their heads. I think Eric is referring to Brainy Ape, a villainous giant monkey with Hitler's brain, often seen in the pages of Savage Dragon. But then again, with Eric, you can never be sure. As we found out, right? You're like, what is he thinking right now? (laughs) (laughs) Now, our next letter here is showing that the wizard polybag pack-in items can actually have real-world applications. Because Dennis Culver from the internet writes and says, Dear Wizard, I'm saving money because of you! In the Wizard JLA special last year, you enclosed a JLA membership card, which I promptly slapped my picture on and laminated. I now use this card as my student ID when I go to the movies. Those ticket booth operators are clueless, and I save $2 a flick. If I see a movie a week, that's over $100 saved. Plus, I don't need to go to college to get an ID. That's awesome. Adam, I just uncovered that in the card box we were looking at. Wasn't it in there? Yeah, let's mention this. So for those who are not aware, on Patreon, we did a special video. Maybe it'll be released on our YouTube channel someday. But Mike went through this huge box of trading cards from the 90s that he just had like in his garage for all these years. And he never looked at it. And there were so many just little treasures, not even just cards. There were all sorts of things. And that card was in there. Yeah. Oh, man. This right. seems dangerous, though. The replied. Jim McLaughlin <laughs> says, you think that's cool? You could buy beer with the Avengers ID card and close with wizard number 76. <laughs> I can't believe they'd even uh, suggest that. How old do you have to be to get some beer in Canada? 18. 18. We're halfway to Europe, right? <laughs> yeah. That European influence. That's for exactly. sure. Now that we've found the news out of the letters column, I think it's time we check out the news in the headlines with our... 
All right, kicking off the Wizard News section, this issue is Great Expectations, an article that starts the rumor mill and sets the odds as to who will take over the writing duties on the X-Men titles. Following the departure of Joe Kelly and Stephen T. Siegel, not Seagal, <laughs> Wizard goes right to the boss and asks Marvel Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris what the odds are for their list of suggestions. So first up is Joe Casey, who was writing Cable at the time, uh, and he says, quote, Joe is a great new writer, and I'm really enjoying Cable. It might be a little early in the game on something as big as X-Men, but it's definitely a possibility. Alan Davis is already the fill-in writer and artist for X-Men in the interim, about which Harris states, quote, he can write and draw for as long or as short as he wants. It's his call. But Davis himself reveals that I don't mind filling in, but I don't think I can write this long term. So he's putting himself out of the race. Yeah. All right. Uh, next one here, former X-Men writer Fabian Nicieza, although I think one of our past guests said it was Fabian Nicieza, I don't know, says he's writing the new Gambit series. Wizard thinks that's great. He has one foot in the door. But Fabian, a.k.a. Debbie Downer here, points out, <laughs> quote, I've neither been asked nor do I expect to be asked to write the books. So to ask whether I would or not is a moot point. <laughs> You know, with Wizard, they're always looking for something fun, and he's just like, I'm going to suck all the fun out of any comment. Now, rookie writer Joe Harris is named as a possibility, but much like Joe Casey, Bob Harris explains, quote, Joe is very new to the business and is writing slingers. I think it's a little too early in the game for him to consider the X-Men, but that could change. And then when they ask Harris, he's just like, yeah, I'm pretty new to the business. I don't think <laughs> I'm in the running. And finally, when Dan Jurgens is mentioned by Wizard for the job, Harris is caught off guard quote to be honest i hadn't even thought of dan i believe i'm the biggest moron on the face of the earth for not thinking of dan jurgens hmm. <laughs> of course they have to go back to the possibility of chris claremont or john byrne returning to the x-men claremont declares as a matter of practical decision making it's not up to me meanwhile burns says simply nope Equally disinterested is Mark Wade, who says there isn't an instrument small enough in the universe to measure my interest. They'd have to offer me complete creative control, and I'm not saying that to be arrogant. I need to know that it's my vision, not the editor's. I am very shocked by some of these responses. Yeah, you'd think they just want the money, right? It's just like... Well, also, it's X-Men. I thought everyone wanted to write X-Men, but... It's a different time, I guess. Yeah. Echoing this, the former X-Factor writer Peter David explains, quote, When you're on an X-Book, you're not steering the boat. You're lashed to the top of an elephant, and the elephant goes wherever it wants. Sometimes you have to hang on for dear life. No, I don't think I'm a good fit. <laughs> Finally, adding a bit of comedy to the mix, Wizard suggests home run dynamo Sammy Sosa, about which Harris remarks, quote, Sammy's great. We'd love to have him on X-Men. And just think of all the free Cubs tickets. Gosh, I love Wrigley Field. Hey, you never know. <laughs> so, Mike, I'm curious. Can you think of, like, a totally off-the-wall writer from comics or elsewhere that you would like to see working on the X-Men books and get their interpretation? Define off-the-wall for me, Adam. Honestly, in my mind, I was thinking Mike's going to say he's actually had a turn in comics. Clive Barker writing the X-Men. What do you think? Oh, yeah. See, that that's pretty off the wall. See, I, <laughs> I immediately just go to, I want I want a good writer. Give me, like, Jeff Johns on the book. <laughs> that's what I want. I, really? See, no, I, I'm, I'm just saying, like, if they're going to take a chance, nobody seems yeah. to want the gig, right? The young guys don't know any better. The old guys are like, mm, I don't know, man. Unless you're giving it really to me, which they know editorials like 
no, we police every bit of this X-Men thing that makes us our money. You know what I think would just have been cool? If they used like a writer from the actual animated series. Oh, because okay. those were really well told stories. Great but they were just interpretations of Chris Claremont's I, stories. I know, but I feel like they could have come up with new stuff because they kind of deviate near the at the last season do they not yeah yeah they started, seen, but yeah. even then len ween was writing like they got Uh-oh. comic book writers to come in and write those episodes that's what's funny it's just okay, like I, I only want good writers i don't want anything off the okay. wall give me todd <laughs> mcfarlane just give me todd mcfarlane writing x-men and he has to draw the covers <laughs> that would actually be really interesting to see his take on x-men of all characters because i think yeah. he only drew them once right in that spider-man so i guess it was an x-force crossover but it's close enough yeah know? but he also did all the marvel tales covers and he does some great x-men images on those so okay yeah all right uh moving on our next story shooter plans daring comeback reports that jim shooter has another new comic book imprint in the works to launch in 1999 called daring comics the debut titles will be anomalies a science fiction teen superhero book and wrath of God starring a professional executioner working in a world where all life is sacred. Unfortunately for Shooter, these books never materialized. He actually explained why on his blog in 2011. So here's what he said, Adam. Because I was... M, the pariah of comics, after Broadway comics was discarded by the morons at Golden Books Family Entertainment, which went bankrupt soon thereafter, nothing to do with us, but satisfying nonetheless, I needed a gig. No one wanted me. Am I such a bad writer that no one could use me? I guess. Anyway, I figured I'd have to self-publish. My great friend Chuck Rosansky was going to help get me started. He suggested the name Daring, by the way. I created several properties, including Anomalies, and started developing them. But I finally found a job creating comics and comics-related properties for a multimedia company called Phobos Entertainment. I had to take the job and shelve Daring. Had to make some money right now. Had to pay the bills. None of that work ever saw the light of day. And Phobos folded a couple years later. It's pretty so, crazy. All this work that never went anywhere. He actually has like, you know, character sketches and sample pages on that blog. If you guys want to look it up, see if it's anything you would have bought at the time. There's actually another company later on that releases a book called The Anomalies, which I thought was interesting. But I guess maybe he just didn't renew the copyright if he ever had it. But do you know who Chuck Rosansky is? Nope. So have you ever heard of Mile High Comics? He, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the owner of Mile High Comics. No way. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, so... Poor Jim Shooter. It's rough, man. It's rough. But finally, Wizard ran one of their infamous America online polls for a question that would become the focus of the magazine once they crossed over into the 21st century. And of course, that question is, who is the sexiest female character in comics? Now, Catwoman won the race with 33% of the vote, followed by Joseph Michael Linsner's Dawn with 14%, Witchblade got 12%, Rogue from the X-Men earned 11%, Vampirella right behind her with 10%, Tigra from the Avengers with 6%, and She-Hulk with 5%. Then 9% was awarded to the other category where people thought other characters were hot. Now, it's mentioned that Rogue and Witchblade were not one of the original choices presented in the poll, but fans demanded them via write-in. So that seems to be happening a lot with these polls, like Wizards putting out their ideas, people are like, what? What about this character? So, Mike, do you dare admit which comic character you 
found to be sexiest at this time in your teenage years. Can we first talk about the fact that Tigra is listed? A furry character. Hey, that was a thing, man. <laughs> and well, yeah, it's like a f- the furry. If you're yeah. furry, you're... so with that is a representation of readers. We have six percent furries. <laughs> um, I think at the time I was probably all in on Angela. Okay. I'm not no one from this list. Rogue definitely first superhero crush would have been Rogue because of the cartoon series. Hey, that's fine. And Vampirella, Vampirella would be very high because there were so many photo covers, like those cosplay covers. Uh huh. They were impossible not to see. They <laughs> always had a new Vampirella model. Yeah. Okay, hey, Adam, I laid it out on the table. Give us yours. <laughs> Is it She-Hulk? Yes or no? <laughs> uh, it, 100% it's She-Hulk for me. And here's why. So I was <laughs> reading I... 13, okay? And I, Fairchild, you're of course, okay, Fairchild, this is awesome, you know? But then I had stopped reading the book by this point and I had started diving into back issues. Like I was still picking up new comics here and there, but I was like, there's got to be some better stuff because what they're putting out now is not interesting interesting me and i started finding the john byrne she hulk stuff and so i'm reading it i'm like this is great and i think what i find sexiest about she hulk is her sense of humor like that's what i love is like yes she's very attractive but she's so much fun and she like doesn't take life too seriously she has this attitude that is so appealing because like there were so many you know bad girls and whatever somebody like scantily clad women in comics never interested even fairchild i was not interested because she's kind of a boring person. But She-Hulk is a super fun and intelligent person, so always She-Hulk for me. And no, so thoughts on Tatiana Maslany, She-Hulk, Adam? Oh, again, like, she's all charisma. I think she's fantastic as Jen. And yeah. She-Hulk, I mean, again, the CGI, <laughs> maybe it didn't bring to life what John Byrne was able to create in the comics, you know, as part of, like, physical appeal. But I love her attitude. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, now it's time that we dive into the meat of this issue. Ooh, it is meaty, Mike. Uh, we're going to check out our table of contents. So Wizard 88 with a December 1998 cover date was offered with two different covers. Now, the first was a villains cover by Jim Calafiore with Dr. Doom and the Joker standing back to back like an early 90s rap duo. It's so funny. Like their arms are crossed and they're like, huh. While a bunch of wanted posters featuring other comic book baddies are just kind of like flying around them. Why? It doesn't make sense to me. Are they the ones after the villains? Yeah, it really (laughs) looks like they're promoting their new primetime buddy cop series. (laughs) The funny thing is, though, that if you read in the big book of covers there's not a whole bunch of behind the scenes details on this cover but they said that Jim Calafiore is the one who decided to make Wanted in the wizard font so it's got that swooping font if you notice now the second cover was a Joe Matarera Battle Chasers cover featuring that little girl Gully and the steampunk robot Calibretto the issue came packed with a Slingers Zero issue which actually was super important if you were going to read this series because it literally sets up like the mystery that's in those first issues, all those variant first issues that had extra pages, like their teammate who died, you never see her in the book. You see her in this zero issue. 
and how she it's died a, and everything. It's a great little origin issue. Anytime I see it, I pick it up just to give away to people. It, it's a good little origin issue. Yeah, I have multiple copies too, because they always seem to show up. The other thing that it had inside, there wasn't much other than like, you know, oh, you could buy like, you know, a collector's Amazing Fantasy 15 plate, but it's not like a painted plate that you eat off of. It's like just a plate of metal, <laughs> just like weird stuff. But they had an offer for a Tales of the Darkness half issue called it their collector's issue. I'm curious though, with the main covers here, Mike, do you have a preference one over the other? Oh, I like the cheesy villains one. I'm not a bat. I don't know anything about battle chasers. I only read the first issue recently and I was kind of confused. I have to say, I know nothing about it. Well, maybe in our first story, you'll learn a few things. <laughs> our first cover story. It's a mad, mad world. It's a visual tour of the fan favorite artist studio. Items of note include a cliffhanger mashup poster from a previous issue of Wizard mounted on the wall, along with a piece of envelope art originally submitted to the magazine for the monthly contest, about which he says, quote, I saw the envelope and was so impressed. It reminds me every day that people are loving the book. You can never get enough envelope art. There's also a ton of manga, anime, and video game art on the walls. Next to his anime VHS collection are a replica of the sword Excalibur and a Japanese katana. The artist explains, quote, I got really into weapons for about one week and now I pick them up now and again for fun and use them in creative ways. The sword, the katana, I sliced a watermelon with. The last page shows Joe Mad playing video games with a floor full of consoles, including an N64, Sega Saturn, and PlayStation. We'll make sure to post all this to our social media so you guys can all enjoy the images. I gotta say, these Joe Mad fans out there, they're going to eat this up if they've never seen it or they forgot about it. I feel like, why did this escape me? It's so like a blind spot for me. I don't know anything about Joe Mad. But do you Battle like Ch like the anime manga style? No. That's probably Maybe that, why. Is that why? Okay. Yeah, because uh, yeah. same thing for me. Like, he did not register. I mean, Age of Apocalypse, that was him. Like, he redesigned everybody. He put all that together. So that's, like, the main thing I know him for. But yeah, Battle Chasers comes out. I only remember it because I only ever saw it in quarter bins. Like, from 2005, yeah. Battle Chasers, because he stopped releasing issues. And so everybody gave up on it. And they had all these extra issues, I think, that weren't selling, at least at my local shops. So weird. I, I didn't know that about that, that he was part of X-Men. Uh, it didn't never registered. I guess. <laughs> All right, well, Mike, if you haven't had enough of comic book villains yet, we're jumping back in. That's right. Uh, our next cover story, Dangerous Minds, is a conversation with an actual psychologist where Wizard asked him to analyze the issues of various comic book supervillains. Not comic book issues, mental issues. So this is going to be interesting. Dr. Stuart Fishoff says that the biggest issue with the portrayal of these bad guys in comics is that, quote, they give a bad name to true psychotics. In the real world, the vast majority of people who have been diagnosed with psychotic disorders of one type or another are not violent. So starting with Dr. Doom, Fischoff's analysis finds, quote, strong Oedipal fixations on his mother. But the psychologist <laughs> is the first to admit that he himself would be in danger if he tried to treat the monarch of Latveria. Quote, Doom would quickly kill any analyst who suggests he has an unhealthy fixation on his mother. So I'm not about to volunteer for the job. <laughs> 
Then, using Alan Moore's The Killing Joke as a starting point for the Joker, the Doctor determines, quote, If the Joker's origin story is true, then he was a complete failure in the real world. He couldn't hold down a job or even take care of his wife. Therefore, the only part of his life where he has ever enjoyed any success is as a super criminal. That's why he associates civilized behavior with failure and crime with success. <laughs> How about that? Huh? Yeah. Okay. And when asked how Magneto could overcome his disdain for Homo sapiens, Dr. Fishoff suggests the master of magnetism would, quote, start looking at what he has in common with humans, not what is different between them. Psychologists call that an integrative rather than a disintegrative training program. As for how to treat a man with four metal arms fused to his body, Bischoff recommends that Dr. Octopus needs, quote, a CT scan to see if he has a brain tumor <laughs> or other wound to the brain that could account for the rage he periodically experiences. The lab accident that gave him his arms obviously gave him some kind of brain damage. So if the damage is too severe, there may be nothing you can do other than locking him up. As for Lex Luthor, he may be too obstinate to treat, says the good doctor. He would no doubt view therapy as a competition and try to outsmart every therapist he deals with. <laughs> this is deep stuff. I love it. <laughs> now, the only female patient on the list is Catwoman, inciting her rough childhood, which made Selina Kyle develop the attitude that, quote, no one will look out for you. You have to look out for yourself. Fishoff warns that even her semi-heroic behavior in saving others might not actually be altruistic. Quote, Catwoman is addressing her own demons. Helping them actually gives her a chance to show even more hostility because it gives her a chance to beat up a pimp or a drug dealer. The problem is, she will do the same thing against good people. She will vent her hostility against anyone she wants, good or bad. And that means she does not have healthy motives. See, I wonder... If we had a modern day, you know, current 2024 therapist examine them, because we look at mental health in such a different way now. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. So I don't, I wonder, you know. <laughs> but I'm curious if you wanted to know their deep, dark secrets or anything, is there a supervillain that you would want to sit in on a therapy session for? You know, they're like, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> God. Okay. So I feel like I'd already know what the answer is because they've done a great, there's like a great one shot about him, but Captain Cold. Oh. Yeah, I think Captain Cold would be a good one, but only because, so there is an issue. I don't know the issue number offhand. It's like an origin, kind of, uh, Jeff Johns does kind of an origin story about him and like a flashback. It is amazing. It's one of the best issues of Flash. Okay. Uh, so yeah, Captain Cold's on my list. How about yours? So like evil Ernie in the chaos comics, like in his early stories, it's all about therapy. I mean, that's how he got in touch with Lady Death and got his powers and all this stuff. So we kind of know everything about him. Lady Death, she's seen as a hero, but she's also Lady Death. She is fueling evil Ernie to kill everybody on Earth. So I see her as a villain. I kind of want to know what her deal is. Like, I know her origin story and like her issues with her parents and all this stuff. But like, just like, where is she coming from? Because of just like the bad girl stigma. Like, I'd love to just say like, Lady Death, what, what do you want us to know about you? What, what are your fears? <laughs> what are the things we're not understanding? You know? All right. Uh, speaking of Catwoman, our next article, Cat's Meow, is an interview with comic book writer Devin Grayson, who had only been writing comics for three years at this point. 
after only starting in on reading them one year prior to getting hired by DC Comics. She explains that she became invested in comic book characters after accidentally channel surfing into an episode of Batman the Animated Series. This is what she says, uh, quote, It was the first time I ever saw Batman as a father figure. I became absolutely fascinated by the relationship between Dick Grayson and Bruce Wayne. I wanted to know these characters. To get to know them, you have to go into their medium. Now, let me just stop for one moment, Adam. When I was reading this article, and it's like, she just accidentally watched Batman. And then the next part here that I'm about to reveal to the listeners is where I'm like, this is ridiculous. This is such BS. <laughs> so how did she get the job? I pretty much pestered the editors for two years. I knew I just had to write these characters. I told them I'd do anything, answer fan letters, sweep the floors. I just wanted to be closer to it to learn more. The DC editors were extremely kind and accessible, and they were probably amused by me at some level. Now, let me reveal, she is the girlfriend of a famous comic book writer. So in this article, they say that, <laughs> yes, yeah, she's dating Mark Wade at the time. Yes. Says that they met at a convention. It doesn't necessarily give the timeline. Okay. Was she already writing comics and then she met him or vice versa? But there's no indication that there was some okay. sort of nepotism. But... I can buy that. But when the way they wrote the article, though, was that it was like she just stumbled upon Batman, started to get into comics. And then, you know, Mark Wayne's there all of a sudden. So, okay, I'll buy it, Adam. <laughs> I'll let you continue. All right. From that point on, then, Grayson got a gig writing a short story for Batman Chronicles number 7 featuring Nightwing and Donna Troy, which earned her more one-shot assignments until she was ultimately given the chance to take over for Chuck Dixon on Catwoman that started with issue number 54, which was a job she still had at this time. Now, she had been given the job of reuniting the all-new Teen Titans from the 80s for the relaunch title, Titans. And she says, quote, It's a real powerful team, something that could be problematic. Why are they working together? They can work alone, but they come together and explore the needs of one another's lives. That's family to me. Now, additionally, DC had given Grayson the freedom to create her own title, a book she refers to as The Weinbergs that is eventually published as Relative Heroes, the story of five teenagers who hit the road in a Winnebago after the death of their parents to become superheroes. Says Grayson, quote, it's really the most me thing out there. It's straight out of my sick little head. Now, Grayson was even being invited over to Marvel by Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti to write a Black Widow miniseries for Marvel Knights. So with all these opportunities coming her way, Grayson admits, quote, My favorite question I've ever fielded is, what character do you want to work with? And I just smile because I've already done it. So, Mike, I know that as we were reading this article, we're like, she was writing a lot of stuff and we wanted to kind of explore and find out what it was all about. So which of these titles of hers that you started reading stood out to you the most? I think the thing I, I was most impressed by was Catwoman. So it starts off, it's kind of a hard read, her first issue on Catwoman. It's very heavy on the um, the captions. Like there's tons. Internal monologue, yeah. Internal monologue is just like, 
oh my god, it's painful. But then she kind of hits her stride after you get through the crossover, what is it, Cataclysm series? Yeah. Oh, just end Cataclysm, end, please. <laughs> it's like part eight, Catwoman whatever, part <laughs> eight of Cataclysm. And then when, when you get into the series again, I found she hit her stride. It was starting to flow. Um, I didn't get too deep into her Catwoman run, but I felt like for, you know, late 90s comic book writing, it was, it was pretty decent stuff. I don't love the Catwoman character. Like, I don't really get the appeal of her own title except i was a huge fan i think it was pete woods when he was on the series so that the next volume but i thought it was all right and then i didn't get to check out her black widow miniseries which i, I am curious about but her relative heroes i don't know if it was the art adam or or the writing i couldn't figure it out it, it was both i okay. read that and i was like what is this like what this is, is happening terrible like you can't keep track of anybody nobody like, yeah it, the setup happens so fast it's just these kids and then they watch a tv news report that their parents got killed in a car crash and then one of them goes hey we should all be superheroes. We're going to go to Metropolis. We all have superpowers. They don't explain why. They don't explain how they know they have superpowers. We're going to find Superman. He's going to help us find what really happened to our parents. But we're also going to be superheroes. Let's all jump in an RV and go. Why? Like, I know. I, and they're yeah. not all siblings. Like one's a babysitter. And it's like one's a cousin. You, yeah. But yeah, I didn't. Nothing made sense. And I kept trying. Like, I was trying really hard to be like, well, maybe it's the art that's throwing me off. But I'm glad I'm not alone in feeling that. I was really, it was Yeah, I was just like, maybe it was just too early in her career to handle, like, something. You could do whatever you want. Because then it's just like, well, it makes sense to me. And it's like, yeah, okay. but you to be able to lay this out slowly for the rest. I, of I have to admit, you know, now that I've segued into comic book writing, I think it would be so challenging to do, like, a team book. Like, I think eventually I could I could tackle it, but it is hard in comics to because like reading X-Men nowadays, I'm still like, I don't really love how they if you watch the X-Men movies, for instance, they always pick a protagonist. It's Wolverine. Wolverine is your protagonist. The other characters have small arcs, but Wolverine's the main character. With these comic books, it's constantly a problem where they never pick a protagonist. Every character is important. Every character needs to have just as much spotlight. And and I think for someone new to writing like her, like that's a tough thing to, to create a team book out the gate. But also, I don't know why she didn't set up anything. It was yeah, like, yeah, we gotta it, start this comic. That being said, though, because when I read that, you know, the Weinbergs, not the Weinbergs, Relative the Weinbergs. Heroes... But it, it was one of those things where I was just like, is she just bad at writing team books? So I went over to the Titans book and I started reading that because I read a lot of new Teen Titans in my early days of fandom. I was picking a lot of those out of the back issue bins. And I was like, you know, she has a pretty good handle on the character's backstory. She said she did a lot of research and made sure she was going to be true to the relationships that have built up over the years. The only thing I'll say is it's Brian Michael Bendis does this a lot too, where everybody's a smart aleck. Everybody has clever dialogue. And it's just kind of like, mm, I don't think everybody's that, you know, that interesting, uh, you know, but it, it, it was kind of like, Fun to see everybody come together. I thought the plots and everything really worked well. I even picked up like the last or one of the last issues of her run. And I was like, okay, this is pretty good that the team is now like disbanding. <laughs> like they came together for a year. And they're like, this is not working and they're coming apart. So I thought she did a really good job with that. But I will say that, yes, her solo character work is way better because I did read the Black Widow Marvel Knight series. It's oh. only three issues. If you watch the Black oh, Widow movie- it's 
It's with I I I didn't realize it was that series. I've already read it. That's a great series. Yeah, and the art is fantastic. JG Jones. On oh my that. god, it's great. Okay, I I didn't realize that I didn't put the pieces together with um the, what's the the her sister Elena Elena yeah, yeah that's a that's a fantastic series. She just got better then. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. she really improved, but you know by the time that one came out, like I I thought that was so strong. And again, just like the action set pieces, everything about that series. Again, three. Issues. Keep it short. You could get a lot of good stuff in there. Adam, going back to the previous articles, it makes sense why so many of those writers are like, I'm not touching an X-Men book because it is. It's it's so challenging. So absolutely. Now, interestingly enough, I feel like Wizard did a good job of putting these related articles together because, you know, we heard Devin Grayson was inspired to write comics by happening upon an episode of Batman, the animated series. Well, our next article is a Q&A with Paul Dini, one of the co-creators and, and writers of that series. It explores the veteran animation writers' upcoming projects for 1999, which included the new Batman Beyond animated series and comic book work with Alex Ross. So when asked about Batman Beyond, Dini, he's mostly sharing the same information we covered several issues back when it was like a round table with the whole creative team of Batman Beyond. But he did mention something that I had forgotten was part of the story. He says that Bruce Wayne created the Batman Beyond suit because obviously he was getting older. He needed help in continuing his crime fighting activities, but also that, quote, it had such a kick that the first time he wore it, it gave him a heart attack. So around age 60, he took the suit off for good, hung it up in the Batcave and left it there. I didn't know about the heart attack thing. I didn't remember that. Maybe that's a big plot point in that pilot episode. I was like, huh, okay. Um, then when asked why they chose to create a futuristic Batman series instead of using another DC character as a jumping off point, Deanie explains, quote, we worked up a Catwoman solo show that we liked an awful lot. But what it comes down to is what the WB wants to buy. So it doesn't boil down to not wanting to do the Justice League or that we don't think we can. We're just dealing with a marketplace where there's very little room for experimentation and i feel like that has changed a lot there's so much experimentation oh in animation God, yeah. these days yeah but mike could you imagine this world where the catwoman movie we got what if there is a catwoman animated series by the creators of batman the animated series and then that's what they based what became the halle berry movie on right instead of the nonsense that they just cobbled together with like 13 writers and threw up on screen <laughs> It actually doesn't feel possible. Like there's no, there's no parallel universe where I see a Catwoman show existing. It just doesn't even make sense to me, does it? I was trying to even think of like, was there a female-led series at that time? You know what, though? Now that I think about it, I don't think, you know, at this time, could I have ever imagined a Harley Quinn series or Harley Quinn being as big as she is? Like, I guess by this point, she had her own ongoing series, right? No, well, let's read on here. because Oh my God, you're right. It is coming up. It's also announced that the Mad Love comic book story that Paul Dini and Bruce Timm created for DC is being adapted into an animated series episode as well. Also, Harley Quinn is being introduced into mainstream DC continuity through the Batman No Man's Land story arc, about which Dini explains... She's probably not going to be as out-and-out homicidal as other characters in the mainstream Batman books. But she was never intended to be bad anyway. Additionally, Deanie has penned the Superman Peace on Earth one-shot being painted by Alex Ross and reveals that similar one-shots will star Batman, Captain Marvel, and Wonder Woman in the near future. Plus, a three-part Harley and Ivy miniseries that Deanie describes as very sexy, very racy, and a lot of fun. Deanie wraps up the interview with a fascinating statement. 
quote, I wish I could step into a time machine and see how the artistic vision of Batman the Animated Series shapes seven-year-old kids who watch the show now and grow up to become artists and writers and filmmakers. I think it's going to have a far-reaching influence on their imaginations. Of course, this proves to be very true, as the series is still widely regarded as one of the best animated series ever. Adam, can you think of a more influential superhero cartoon of the 80s and 90s than Batman the Animated Series? I was trying to look into it. It's like a lot of people think fondly of X-Men and of Spider-Man. For the writing, maybe. But for animation style, they're kind of horrible. Like this one had storytelling and a unique brand new like visual that we'd never seen really. Again, like they're influenced by maybe the Fleischer cartoons of the old days a little bit and things like that. But but to me, I can't think of anybody that stands out like just in animation, like Ren and Stimpy is huge. Because <laughs> now when you see just the Disney shorts and they're Ren and Stimpy cartoons and I can't believe it. They're just watered down Ren and Stimpy animation. I'm like, Disney has accepted this is okay? That I can see. But as far as superhero cartoons, there's nothing that even comes close to this. I think you're right about the Ren and Stimpy thing. I loved Ren and Stimpy. I liked SpongeBob when it started, but I do think it was the downfall of animation for me. It really was. Like, it became all about who can be the wackiest cartoon in every cartoon they make now is like comedy based it's a, how funny can it be yeah there's a few and i know why it's like that boys play more video games than watch cartoons now so they have to lean into the comedy but i think you're right ren and stimpy is up there and batman stylistically if you have to look at the style yeah i mean if but, we want to lump in powder toast man as a superhero segment on ren and stimpy it qualifies <laughs> All right. Now, Behind Closed Doors is an interview with the Marvel editorial staff about their relaunch of Spider-Man and the lengths to which they went to keep their plans secret. Now, as Wizard puts it, quote, following the lead of the sword to secrecy film industry, where the dino of Godzilla went faceless until opening day, Marvel's relaunch has become an impressive exercise in stealth tactics. Godzilla 1998 references here. <laughs> Big blockbuster of that time that nobody wants to think about anymore. So writer Howard Mackey, who is handling both Amazing Spider-Man drawn by John Byrne and Peter Parker, Spider-Man with art by John Romita Jr., admits that fake scripts have been so circulated just in case someone in the office decides to spill the beans and editor ralph macchio states for the record quote i haven't lied to anyone there's been no fibbing holding back information is the most i've done so i just want to ask as we get into this mike were you even aware that there was a relaunch going on with spider-man in 1998 that they had stopped it for a few months then they're bringing it back i'm sure my dad was complaining about it <laughs> At this time, I'm sure he was like, why would they do this? You know, he's been collecting since Amazing Fantasy 15. He was pissed off, but uh, <laughs> I had no clue. I did not care. I was so over Marvel by this point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, like after, you know, they did the clone saga, it was just kind of like, no storyline they're putting out here is getting my attention. Yeah. So you might be asking then, Mike, what's the big secret that Marvel is hiding from the world? Well, <laughs> at the end of the last published issue of Spider-Man's Adventures earlier in 1998, Peter Parker gave up the costume life to become a civilian. And so as the series begins again, a new mysterious Spider-Man is swinging into action in New York City. Of course, Wizard wants to know if Aunt May's darling nephew will ever don his webs again. Howard Mackey breaks the silence by saying, quote, well, yes, come on. Maybe like asking DC if Superman is ever coming back from the dead. Of course he is. 
Now, Wizard does give their guesses as to who the new Spidey might be, suggesting Hobie Brown, a.k.a. the Prowler, or Ollie Osnick, a.k.a. the Spectacular Spider Kid. Did you read that issue when you were younger? Do you know who Ollie Osnick is? Not a clue. They mentioned that both have mimicked Spider-Man's abilities in the past or have the technological scientific know-how to do it. But neither of those you know, suggestions are ultimately revealed to be the substitute webhead. Mike, do you know or do you want to know who it was? I know, because yeah. as soon as I read this article, I ended up reading the series. Well, at least until the reveal. But I don't know who she is exactly. <laughs> like I don't know her origin. Do you? Well, can you inform us, Adam? Yeah. So, so it ends up being that this is something that when we had Mike Zapsick from the Comic Book Men uh, on our podcast, he he was here talking to me, and I, he he didn't spill the beans, okay? Because he was he was just like, oh, you're gonna want to see who it is, but I'm like, I want to hear your reaction. I was like, okay. So it ends up being. A teenage girl named yeah. Patty Franklin, who is in theaters now in Madam Web. She is one of the Oh, she's one of them. Yeah. But as far as her origin goes, you had to be reading those last few issues of what was going on in Spider-Man before this break. And the basic idea is there was this group that was kind of this like little cult that Norman Osborn was a part of and Maddie Franklin got pulled into because of her family connections. And they take part of this ritual where they all get spider-based powers of some sort from like this kind of spider god. And so she gets these enhanced reflexes and all this stuff and the other people in the group kind of go crazy or die. So in the first issue of her ongoing series, which happened after this revelation in these stories where she's being Spider-Man and he's like, what is going on? Who is this? Like, and people start noticing different things about this Spider-Man. Um, and then she joins up with all the other Spider-Women of the past. So you have uh, Julia Carpenter, you have Jessica Drew and Madam Web is bringing them together. And then they actually have this like little society for the first issue, like kind of welcoming her, like you're a Spider-Woman now. And so now she's Spider-Woman. That's who she is. That's how she got her powers. It's kind of weird. She grows like these spider arms that come out of her back eventually. But what do you think of that twist? What do you think of this character? Um, I don't, I don't, I don't have money. <laughs> I'm kind of disappointed. Because, you know, I got the big reveal and I was like, oh, who is this? And yeah, I guess I'm very curious about the Madam Web movie, although it sounds horrible. I, everything you've told me, I'm just so numb. <laughs> I think that's how most people felt. I was pretty excited about it, mainly because I felt like we have the alternate reality M2 universe yeah. made a Parker who's Spider-Girl. And Maddie Franklin feels like we want to have a Spider-Girl, but in regular continuity. Okay. And so she's a very similar attitude, similar hairstyle, similar body. Like she looks like Mayday Parker. And so I think that's kind of what they were going for. I like the, the like spider tentacle things because they end up using that in like the iron Spider-Man suit, yeah. right? They kind, of, they kind of brought that back. So I, maybe I'll d dive deeper, Adam. I don't know. I Once we're getting the original Spider-Man back, let's kind of explore what they had planned for that then. <laughs> I feel like a bit disappointed now that you've told me. Okay. Wizard also asks about the status of Mary Jane and Peter's relationship. Since she left New York City for California without Peter, Mackie states, quote, 
They're not divorced. Everybody agrees that having Peter and Mary Jane married is less interesting because any romantic tension has been missing. Just because they are married at the start of the relaunch doesn't necessarily mean it will be the permanent status quo. Also, for those of you who hadn't been reading the Spider-Man books for a while, it's also revealed that Aunt May is alive and well, even though her headstone was the cover of Spider-Man number 400 several years earlier. Yeah, I was really confused reading it too because they live in like an apartment building or is it a a condo or something in New York City? It's super weird. Yes, the real May was kidnapped by Norman Osborn and it was an imposter that Osborn planted who died in that hospital. When asked about the possibility of Gwen Stacy or the Parker's lost baby making an appearance, Mackie is adamant that neither of those characters will be showing up anytime soon and neither will Norman Osborn. Though Mackie admits, it frightens me how much I love that character. I'm going to miss him for the time that he's gone. As for uh, the other villains ready to wreak havoc in the comic series, a revamped Scorpion appears in Amazing Spider-Man number one, but mostly new villains with names like Ranger and Shadrach will be antagonizing the wall crawler. However, there is one baddie Mackie has on his list. Well, I would love to bring Venom back as the anti-Spider-Man within the first year. If I have my way, we'll be seeing Venom soon. Finally, in a sidebar, Ralph Macchio adds, quote, we're creating such a sense of anticipation that we now have to deliver, but I'm willing to take the chance for the reader's sake. So, Adam, having read these issues, do you think they delivered with this relaunch? Was it worth relaunching it and upsetting Father Schwartz? (laughs) (laughs) I think just to give everybody a break and to say, okay, Everything that was so convoluted from the past 10 years or so of Spider-Man continuity, if you didn't really like Maximum Carnage, if you did like the Clone Saga, if you didn't like Identity Crisis, all that, how about you forget about it? How about you just, for a few months, cool off, we're going to retell his origin, and now it's going to be more middle-of-the-road what you expect from Spider-Man. Everything you've been complaining about, the chances we've been taking, fine, we'll get rid of it. I think they deliver on what the long-term fans wanted, what your dad probably wanted. Because once Peter puts the costume back on, I think in like issue three, like he's already back to being Spider-Man, you're just like, all right, well, these are just regular Spider-Man stories. I mean, <laughs> what I would expect, I don't think they're cool. I don't think they're fun. I don't care about Shadrack. You know what I'm saying? Like, so it's just kind of like, uh, I guess, but I'm not going to keep reading. I was reading because like, oh, there's a mystery Spider-Man. Like, are they going to team up and it's a girl? Oh, that's kind of cool. And then, But then it's just like, no, now Peter's back, everybody. All right. <laughs> Thanks. So as someone that's like been recollecting them slowly, you know, like I had all my Spider-Man books stolen. I never was collecting this time period, but I'm now trying to fill in gaps and get as many amazing Spider-Man books as as possible. I find it super confusing because at some point they go back to the original numbering. Oh, yeah. Like all of a sudden there's like a legacy number and it's like 500 and so it's so complicated. They did it with Avengers, too. At some point, they go back to the original numbering, and I'm like, what What part of my list is this part of Volume 1? Like, what are we... Anyway, as we close out, because Wizard was always looking to exploit the next pop culture trend, Invasion America is an explanation of a strange new phenomenon called 
Pokemon. Now, in case you didn't hear how I said that, it is pronounced Pokemon as the article. <laughs> Make sure to tell English speaking readers multiple times in this piece, which is so wild to think no one knew what it was. Yeah. <laughs> it's explained that Pokemon, quote, began life as a black and white role playing game in Japan that was created for the Game Boy in 1996 and eventually inspired an anime series, a series that infamously caused hundreds of children to have seizures and be sent to the hospital, but now was getting a big media push in North America. Uh, according to Norman Grossfield of Four Kids Productions, who was spearheading this marketing blitz, quote, if we can achieve just a fraction of the success seen in Japan, Pokemon will be bigger than the Power Rangers. Of course, that prediction was proven to be correct, and Pokemania has yet to die down almost 30 years later. Adam, I'm really quick before we continue with this, my kids are obsessed. They just finished the first series, all 52 episodes of the first series. I never watched this. My sister was into it. My household has become a Pokemon household out of within literally three months, I think. Yeah, we have had our Pokemon phase here. Yeah, my kids, like, they didn't really discover it on their own. But when the kids at school started talking about it, oh, my buddy here, he's got, like, every Pokemon card. Like, he's sick of Pokemon because he has every card now because they've just spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars on Pokemon cards. But, like, they, they have watched the series on Netflix, but I don't think they watched the original all the way through they've watched the newer ones that have come out like detective pikachu they liked yeah, yeah. and all that kind of stuff so like they've like dipped in here and there but there's plenty of pokemon in our house but it, same for me at the time like i was not interested i was definitely yeah. too old for pokemon when it was released and i wasn't enough of a gamer that i wanted to get in on playing the game so it's just kind of like man i had friends that were like really into it like i remember walking around my high school and kids just going jigglypuff and i was like Jigglypuff, and now my kids are doing it. <laughs> my kids, they like Mr. Mime, but like at this time, they really were pushing in a big way. And of course, Wizard gets on board with this as well. We have Pokemon on the cover several times. They eventually released their own magazine called In Power just so they could have Pokemon coverage every month. And really, though, if you look at it, this franchise's enduring popularity at least partially and probably mostly has to do with the instant icon status of Pikachu, right? Pronounced mm -hmm. Pikachu. Thanks, Wizard. <laughs> who they describe as, quote, a little yellow electricity-wielding fuzzball pocket monster who oozes cute from every pore. Pika! <laughs> now, the products planned for release in conjunction with the English-dubbed animated series include an adapted manga by Viz Comics, Pokemon Red and Blue video games on the Game Boy, and eventually a game for the N64 home console. There's even a Pikachu Gigapet Tamagotchi oh thing. Remember those? Yep, that's like front and center in the article. Of course, Hasbro is also getting in on releasing action figures for this. They have plush dolls and electronic toys that make authentic sounds from the show. But really, the most enduring and collectible part of Pokemon fandom is the collectible card game being developed by Wizards of the Coast, which is the same company behind Magic the Gathering. 
So this was about to become a huge phenomenon, but it only gets a tiny paragraph in this article. They just say, oh, there's going to be 60 cards coming out in the base set that'll be produced in limited quantities, and then they'll discontinue them. Like they tell you right from the start, they're making this a thing where it's going to be rare. And I think the other element that got my kids into it is the YouTubers, right? So there's these YouTubers that are like opening packs and then they find the most rare card ever. And then they put it in a case and they wear it at a gold chain around their neck like logan paul is this guy's name who got into professional wrestling now he wrestles for wwe and he wears that to the ring his pokemon card that is like the most rare pokemon card out there is worth like a million dollars you know it's i had just no like... idea here's what's funny so my sister collected them right the cards she probably only got maybe 10 packs as a kid but we had a binder of them we found in my mom's basement and my sister's like just throw them out and i was like no no no, no, no. i'm gonna take them to my comic shop and the manager at my comic shop is really into pokemon like she's been collecting since a kid and she was like i'll just give you 150 dollars for all these and i was like okay it was her own money she gave oh but that's why i get so many good 50 cent comics <laughs> um because she makes sure uh, since then I get to look at the the collections that come in first. She obviously will go through them to make sure there's no first Miles Morales or, you know, first Spider-Gwen. But she'll let me look at every box before anyone else since then. I must have given her a gold card or something like that. Like, I'm still like, what did she take from me? <laughs> that I, it was only a handful, Adam. I, maybe 30 cards she took. And the rest, she's like, I don't want them. But if they're from that first series, yeah, they're it probably have been. worth a ton. Yeah. Yeah. So fascinating. And now I'm, I want to I want to ask her, I'll be like, what did I give you? Was it an $800? $150 for $1,500 worth of Pokemon cards. Possible. She said they're for her collection. She's keeping them. Okay. So, you know what? That makes me feel good. I like collectors getting a great deal on, you know, really hard to find stuff. But you're the same as me. You weren't really into it. No, like literally I was averse to it. I was like, this is. So I was too. <laughs> I was like, I cannot. Like the only thing I liked was my sister didn't complain about going to the comic shop. I was like, great. Me and dad can go and we won't hear complaints because she'll get her Pokemon thing and be happy. <laughs> it was just too cutesy and i already yeah. didn't like manga and anime to begin with so i was just like i just and I, I i watched it back in the day i was like i'm gonna watch an episode to find out what this is about i'm like this is nonsense like is total, <laughs> I, no I have i have such an appreciation for it now so my kids i don't know why but they were adamant the show they wanted to watch was the first series and i didn't even know it was the first series until they finished like 52 or 54 episodes and i'm like okay let me find out what the next season is and it's like there's 26 seasons but they're called different things in canada each streaming platform has a different pokemon series so i had to find the movie next and now we're on to like a different streamer watch but I, I appreciate it now. I really have an appreciation and a fondness for it. My son's wall is covered in Pokemon stuff. What I really admire the most is the fact that they've been able to keep it alive this long, that they've yes. been able to keep building and reiterating and like, yeah, they're playing to the nostalgia of a lot of adults that just continued in the franchise, but they bring in so many more new collectors and players and whatever you want to call them. Like the fandom just continues to snowball. It's like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The cards, yeah. you get them at Halloween now. The comic shop gives out cards for Halloween. And in Happy Meals. Yeah. <laughs> Unreal. 
Oh, it's wild. So obviously, you know, the, the Pokemon, they had many animated movies that were released in theaters. I have them on VHS in case my kids ever want to watch a videotape with me, you know. Uh, but we want to check out what other comic books were being adapted to film. So it's time that we check out Heroes in Motion. The top story of the coming attraction section this issue is the announcement that Jeff Bone, Jeff Smith's Bone, not Jeff's Bone, dude, edit that correctly, Adam. <laughs> Jeff Smith's Bone is being developed as a full-length feature film through Nickelodeon because, as Smith explains of the House of Slime, quote, they don't want to make another Disney movie. Bone is as unique as Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, and the people at Nick understand that Han Solo doesn't break out into song. Uh, the animated feature will be co-written and co-produced by Smith, and it's mentioned that his previous career in owning and operating an animation studio is what got him the kind of creative control that most comic book creators don't usually receive when their works are adapted. Smith reveals that, quote, the main storyline for the movie is the Great Cow Race. The film storyline comes from the first three trade paperbacks, about 16 issues, but the movie will have a definite ending. Sad Sadly, to this day, we have not seen a bone adaptation, live action series or movie, though when it does happen, I I'm sure it's going to be a hit. Adam, would you pay to see a bone animated film? Well, only if my kids were interested. I mean, like, it still hasn't hooked me. I've read it and I could see how it would be interesting, again, to people who like lord of the rings to people who like fantasy epics like i can really see how that would be super appealing but unless they add a tinge of humor to it that really makes it something fun and maybe that's what has kept it from being produced maybe jeff smith's like no just verbatim adapt my comic there's a reason it's popular i don't know that i would like to see it as is unless the performances are just blowing my mind somehow when i see the trailer it wouldn't be for me but what do you think I think it would be a hit. I do think it would be a hit, but they would need to add humor. I agree. Completely. I mean, it has humor. It has yeah. jokes that are very visual and fun in that way, but I just think it needs a little bit of an edge, a little bit of something. Yeah. I don't know. I've only read the first trade paperback and that was, it may have been in the 90s now that I think about it. So I'm not as familiar, but visually I know, I feel like it's got... It's got something that really draws you to it. Every time I see it at the bookstore, I'm like, oh, I should really pick that up again and read it. <laughs> I never it's do. It's like but... reading a storyboard because there's so many like silent yeah. panels where it's just reactions of characters. So 100% like it's made for animation. So It is. I, it is shocking. But, you know, being in the industry, I see lots of stuff doesn't get made, you know? Like I know Disney picked up a Clive Barker series called Aberat. They paid $3 million for it and then sat on it. It's what they do. So That is crazy. Yeah, cut, you know, that makes Maybe, you know, if only I could get armored sold for $3 million and then them not make it. <laughs> then I could keep making the comic, Adam. <laughs> yeah. Now, speaking of Disney and Marvel, who might be interested, you never know. Wizard starts out their next report by declaring, quote, 
Marvel finally did it. After years of failed projects and straight-to-video releases, the comic book company has finally put out a successful motion picture, and its name is Blade. Uh, though it seems like a low number to be called a box office success today, I think, Blade is said to have earned not only $50 million in its first few weeks of release, but also good reviews from the critics. So screenwriter David Goyer is interviewed, and he says about the possibility of a follow-up film, quote, I've talked to both Marvel and New Line, and they're both definitely interested. It's likely at this point there will be a sequel, which is something we've heard so many times before, right? Now, as for what the story might be, Goyer says, quote, we postulated in the first movie, that's a big word, postulated, <laughs> that vampirism is a sort of progressive virus. What happens if the new strain creates something even meaner? Blade may be forced into a position where you'd have to team up with the vampire community to fight against the new menace. Now, Goyer name drops Morbius as a possible new nemesis for Wesley Snipes, which doesn't happen, but that is the basic storyline of Blade 2. Then looking to cap off a trilogy, Goyer imagines, quote, if there is a third movie, it would deal with the apocalyptic meltdown the main villain Deacon Frost was talking about at the end of the first film, which is not 100% what happens, but they did get three movies out of this, a TV series, and eventually a reboot. We will see when the MCU actually puts that out. But Mike, where do you stand on the Blade trilogy? You love horror. You love comics. Blade. I, I love the first one, and I, I like the second one. I think it's neat, but I, I have no reason to rewatch the second one. And then the third one, I don't hate, but I, I don't know. It, there's bits I like. Like, I can't even tell you what the story is. I just remember I like the idea of the daughter of Whistler, and it's Jessica Biel. I will admit I worked with Jessica Biel for a day, and she was wonderful to work with. What about Ryan Reynolds? He's Canadian. Did you He's ever fine. He's what, that's what drags me down. I don't like him in the movie. I don't <laughs> like Ryan Reynolds at all until he played Deadpool. And then I was like, I love this man. He's great. He should do, he could do anything. You know, I haven't seen the Pikachu detective Pikachu yet, but he, he looks great in the trailers, even playing Pikachu. But yeah, it's mixed for me. I'm kind of all over, but I love the first one. How about you? Are you? Yeah, I mean, the first one is a classic. I saw it in theaters. Like, I, I remember being there just like, this is cool. Like, we snuck in. I wasn't old enough to see it. But yeah, when we I saw it on VHS. <laughs> no, we, we went and saw it. And then uh, I, I'm indifferent to the second one. It just kind of happened. I think the third one looks better than the uh, second yeah, one. Yeah. So I enjoy watching it more. The story is just kind of so-so. But we did get into all of this on 90s Super Cinema on our Patreon. Our patrons did vote for us to cover Blade a few months back. So if you're curious, you can jump over there, pay your five bucks a month, take a listen to our thoughts. Okay. But Mike, let's tell us what's going on here because the box office success, but there might have been some other news. Blade might have been doing great at the box office, but how did he do in court? Wizard reports that comic book writer Marv Wolfman, who created Blade and Deacon Frost for Marvel, is suing New Line Cinema, Toy Biz, Time Warner, and even TVT Record, who produced the Blade soundtrack, claiming trademark and copyright infringement. This is wild. Marvel is not able to be sued due to their current bankruptcy situation. So what's his case, according to Wolfman's lawyer? Quote, Marv was a freelance writer when he created Blade and Deacon Frost and not under contract to Marvel at the time. So unfortunately for Wolfman, the only thing he got from his day in court was based on characters created by credit on all future Blade productions. So did he get no money? 
no money. I'm sure he had to pay a lot of money to sue them and he didn't get anybody back. I mean, maybe they paid for his court costs. Again, I yeah, the money is what I'm sure he wanted, but hey, it's kind of cool that they finally acknowledged, created by. That's, yeah, that's I mean, a- hopefully that got him some more work somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> got him a convention appearance somewhere. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. Now, there is a casting call for a live-action Thor movie. We're going to save that for the half episode, so you can tune in for that. Also, the Last Man Standing battle from this issue, which is really fun, may feature a character we've previously mentioned just a few minutes ago. I do want to say about the half episodes so there is a slight dip this is just a peek behind the curtain in people who listen to the main episodes and people who listen to the half episodes most of you listen to everything even my you know friends who listen to the podcast are like are you telling me people don't listen to the half episodes you sure talk about them a lot trying to get me i'm like yeah there's a little bit of a, a dip there each time we do a half episode think of it as the second part of a main episode because we're getting into just more stuff from the issue that literally we didn't have time for. So like, not only are we going to talk about Last Man Standing, not only are we going to talk about the casting calls, but like there's so many, there's comic book reviews. There's all sorts of things there. So just don't cheat yourself. You're missing out on the full breadth of the issue and everything it had to offer if you're not listening to the half episodes. If you're one of those people, just letting you know, there's something for you there. But speaking of battling titans of comics, like in our Last Man Standing battles, it's time to get ready to Rumble with Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. In Jim Lee news, Wizard brings up the fact that his contract with DC doesn't start until January 1st, 1999, so there's a possibility Marvel could have him do more work before the clock strikes midnight on December 31st. Of course, this never happens. Also, Wizard gives a thumbs up to Jim Lee's decision when they declare that, quote, selling Wildstorm to DC lets Jim Lee settle back into the artist chair. And now that he's exclusive with DC, could a lead-drawn Batman or Superman title be far behind? A prediction which does come to pass and is fantastic. That is one of the best. Yeah, people love it. Now, in Todd McFarlane news, Wizard expands on the previous report that he would be animating a new music video for Pearl Jam's song, Do the Evolution, which I finally watched. So I I went and checked this out because we brought it up just recently and we were like, oh, I hadn't seen it, I hadn't seen it. And... Here's what I'll say. There's a reason the video was nominated for a Grammy and the song was not. (laughs) I've never been a Pearl Jam fan. Like, I know they're big hits, you know. Don't call me daughter. I know people love them. They're a big 90s band. If you feel it with Pearl Jam, don't, you know, take my opinion. I'm a Kiss fan. What do I know, right? But the video itself, it takes you through human history and it is so cool. Like, it starts with, like, protoplasm or whatever. Like, just, like, literal evolution of the human species into like wars and like everything all the atrocities of humanity the beauty of humanity it imagines the future and that was the one visual that stuck out to me the most because at a certain point they show this like cloning machine and it's it's in the shape of like a pregnant woman with her legs spread and then these babies coming out of her on a conveyor belt and they're stamping them you know with a UPC like on their foreheads and I'm just like what is is this they got barcodes on them like so it's just it's really really interesting stuff plus there's this female character 
who like they flash out her face and it turns to a skull and she kind of looks like death from the Sandman comics. I'm like, how did Neil Gaiman feel about that? He was already in court with Todd McFarlane about Angela. I don't know. There's a lot of like cutting to her too, right? Yeah. Like they cut from her, like she's almost the one in charge of human evolution. <laughs> yeah. Todd McFarlane did a fantastic job, his studio with that. So very, very nice work, worthy of the Grammy. Back to the drawing board for Pearl Jam though. But that brings us to our running tally update Jim and Todd this issue Jim was mentioned six times Todd was mentioned four times which brings our running total to Jim Lee 513 mentions Todd McFarlane 481 come on Todd you gotta do something bigger That being said, the comic book competition isn't over yet. And just like Jim Lee, Mike is looking to keep his lead in our CBIQ quiz. It's the wizard CBIQ. Now let's play, geeks. Mike, how you feeling? I'm, I'm nervous. I feel like I got really lucky that first time. We shall see. We shall see. Okay, so of course, for those of you who don't recall, this is the uh, comic book intelligence quiz. I did want to read something fun here, though. So they have their scoring tell you what your rank would be. And so in this case, if you get one to four, you're a Dave Coulier joey gladstone from full house a good (laughs) flossing with a razor wire i don't know what that means if you get five to nine points you're john stamos cement slippers and a septic tank huh 10 to 14 points the olsen twins graphic violence against children is no laughing matter so a simple gassing what if you get 15 points you're a bob saget force feed him equal parts laxative and broken glass then time to a helicopter rotor and fly off to cincinnati what like they're not fans of the full house but okay whatever (laughs) so your first question mike you're feeling it remember you are in the lead with 10 points i've only earned six points so number one after the fantastic four got shunted to a pocket dimension during that whole onslaught fiasco to whom did nathan richards entrust reed and sue richards son franklin a alicia masters b banshee c silver surfer D, he gave the kid 50 bucks, the keys to the Continental, and told him to go have a blast. Okay. Do you entrust it to a blind woman? This is what I'm struggling (laughs) with. I'm going to go with Silver Surfer. Eh. Ooh, I am sorry. The answer is B for Banshee. What? It's just so random. Totally random. I would not have seen that coming at all. Oh, God. Okay. Banshee. All right. Number two. What's better than one Hulk comic book a month? Why? Two Hulk comic books a month. What new title recently joined the Incredible Hulk? A. The Rampaging Hulk. B. Gray Hulk. C. Tales of the Jade Giant. D. Ted Buck says this doesn't make it to issue number 12. (laughs) Well, there is the Tim Sale Gray Hulk book, but when did that come out? This is 98, 99. I'm going to say Rampaging Hulk correct oh thank god oh. yeah yeah that's right. weird did they foresee the gray hulk they himself? must have imagined yeah something was on the horizon oh, okay number three she's shadow cat now but kitty pride's old nom to super used to be the following carbonated beverage a slice b sprite c surge d dave <laughs> i'm gonna say sprite correct i get too nervous during this <laughs> 
<laughs> the anxiety levels are rising. Yeah. Four, that star of Akiko, Akiko, has met a lot of strange characters in her journeys, but none so charming as that peg-legged rogue, A, Spuckler, B, Stuckler, C, Sputter, D, Spitter, the tobacco chod trailer trash. What is Akiko? <laughs> Akiko is an independent black and white comic book that they loved. They were just always pushing it in Wizard. And so B. we got to... I'm B. I don't even know what you said. B. Oh. I'm sorry. It was A. Suckler. <laughs> I should have known. All right. Now, how much attention were you paying during episode 87 where we had Jay on to talk about Kiss? Number five, Gene Simmons' alter ego is one bad dude in Kiss the Psycho Circus. In fact, he even has a super scary name. A, the demon. B, the ghoul. C, the freak. D, Ken Starr. It's the only guy I know in the band. It's the demon. You got it. All right. Oh, yeah. That's an easy one. I feel like I've gotten a few maybe easy ones. (laughs) All right. Number six, foul villain who dared hold Tony Stark captive in Iron Man number six. Oh, that'd be in volume three, by the way. No, A, Tutankhamun, B, Tuatara, C, Turpentine, D, Tupac Shakur. (laughs) What was B? Tuatara. I'm going to go with B. I don't think it's, unless it was a time. Hold on. No, I'll go with B. B. Correct. You've done. Oh, thank God. Thank God. Because I was thinking of Avengers. I have this Avengers comic where he's wearing medieval armor. So number seven. What mm-hmm. car type accessory did Iron Man have on his original armor? A. An antenna to pick up radio transmissions. B. Air conditioning to keep him cool. C. Headlights to eliminate the darkness. D. Fuzzy dice hanging from the rearview mirror. Cause chicks dig that. A. An antenna. Correct. Going strong here. Five so far. Five out of seven. All right. Number eight. Which one of Superman's childhood buddies grew up to become the villainous conduit? A. Pete Ross. B. Jimmy Olsen. C. Kenny Braverman. D. Kenny Baker. I don't know who Kenny Baker is or Kenny Braverman. So let's say C. Kenny Braverman is correct. How about that? Wow. Okay. Uh, You don't know who Kenny Baker is, though? Is he the fried chicken guy? No. <laughs> Kenny Rogers. That's <laughs> Kenny Baker's fried chicken. No. <laughs> Kenny Baker is the little person who was inside the R2D2 costume. Oh, yes. I know Kenny Baker. Yeah, yeah. Everybody knows Kenny Baker. I feel like no one really knows Kenny Baker. Adam, <laughs> no one knows. I think he was in Time Bandits also. That's true. You're yeah. right. Okay. If you're British, you know Kenny Baker, because I think he was like a British comedian, you know, that then got uh, okay. pulled into Star Wars. But anyway, number nine, holy continuity, Batman, who was revealed to be Wolverine's secret wife in the landmark Wolverine number 125? A, Kitty Pride, B, Jubilation Lee, C, Viper, D, secret wife. I guess this blows the theory of there's no such thing as a bad idea, eh? <laughs> but it, is the, I think this is like a foil cover to 125 i could be wrong um i'm gonna say viper i have no idea correct oh my god (laughs) any of those others uh yeah that would not be a good choice (laughs) yeah all right number 10 what alternative cartoonist is also a writer for the new batman superman adventures cartoon a evan dorkin b matt graining c jeff smith d charles schultz master of the macabre (laughs) uh a Correct. Oh my 
God, Adam, I'm, I'm just guessing at this point. You know who Evan Dorkin is? Yeah, I know Milk and Cheese from when Wizard would give out the uh, the little um, Christmas stamps or whatever. Yeah, the tags, yeah. That's all I know it from. Well, he also was the, the writer and artist on the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures comic for Marvel. No way. Anyway, okay. uh, number 11, Kabuki's little pal who helped her bust out of that weird mental ward where she was being held is named A, Yukio, B, Mariko, C, Akemi, D, Margot Kidder. Come on. I'm gonna, I just read a lot of Kabuki recently. I'm going to say C, but I don't know. Correct. You yeah. are killing it. Look at oh, this. Oh, wow. I am. Number 12, the first comic appearance of Jay and Silent Bob, the Degenerates from Kevin Smith movies, is A, Oni Double Feature, number one, B, Clerks, number one, C, Jay and Silent Bob, number one, D, Snoochy Boochies, number one. Is it just the Clerks? Was there a Clerks comic? Is that your final answer? That's my final answer. I'm sorry, it was Oni Double Feature, number one. Number 13, which funny little Spider-Man knockoff was part of Marvel's kitty-oriented Star Comics line? I know you know this. A, Lil Spidey. B, Spider-Girl. C, Peter Porker, the Spectacular Spider-Ham. D, Spider-Kid. Peter Porker. You got it. Oh, star of the screen, Peter Porker. All right, number 14. Samaritans, perhaps the most powerful being in that superhero nexus known as Astro City. But as detailed in his first appearance, all the big guy really wants out of life is A, a shiny black Mustang convertible, B, enough free time to fly around for fun, C, a border collie puppy, aww, D, <laughs> Astro City to come out on time. <laughs> A? These are all weird joke answers, I feel like. A. You think he just wants a Mustang? I'm sorry. He wants enough free time to fly around for fun. It was really it. None of this made sense. He has to work too hard saving the city. He wants some time to himself. Finally, number 15. The first time Spider-Man and Venom went toe-to-toe, what was it that got Spidey so supremely ticked off? A. Venom scared the wits out of Mary Jane. B, Venom roughed up Aunt May a bit. C, Venom framed Spider-Man for murder. D, Venom said he'd bring over the illegal cable box for the WCW pay-per-view, but went to the bar instead. Jerk. Oh, God. I don't, I honestly don't remember. It's, I don't love that Spider-Man. It's like nothing, I don't read it. So I'm going to say, uh, roughed up Aunt May. Oh, I'm sorry. He oh, scared the wits out of Mary Jane. Is that Never. it? He was just in the shadows in their apartment, and then she comes in and he creeps out at her. And yeah, so I don't remember. I I don't know why I've never revisited it. It's been since the '90s. Like I've never looked at it again. I, wow. But I think oh, it's yeah. because I, when I own it, I'm like, well, this is gold. I cannot touch it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, here's the thing, Mike. You still did pretty well despite okay. that. You're coming out with 10 points wow. to add score. So 10 out of 15. That makes you one of the Olsen twins. You want to be Mary Kate or Ashley? I don't care. I'll take their billions. Oh, the franchise that is the Olsen twins. All right. Well, that was a great competition there. I'll be uh, back in the hot seat next time around. We'll see how I yes. do on episode 89 if I could come back. I don't even know because at this point, you're going to have uh, 20 <laughs> points. And if I get all 15, then I'm just like one over you. <laughs> Let's see if I can pull it out. But Mike, help us close this thing out here. 
All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode and be sure to share it with your friends on social media. You can find us on all the socials at, at Wizards Comics or go to wizards.com to check out our back catalog of over 260 episodes. Unfortunately, I'm not on all of them, everyone. I know you're just, that's a very upsetting, but there's another mic and he is fantastic as well. Uh, there's interviews and more. Be sure to check out our YouTube page where I'm sharing tons of my back issue bin finds or haul videos and so much more. If that isn't enough, join our patreon for just five dollars a month that's like the cost of one comic one comic book and you get pdf scans of each issue we discuss on the podcast plus uncut early release versions of the episodes and our bonus 90 super cinema podcast where for the month of march our patrons voted to hear us discuss the infamous 90s justice league of america tv movie pilot because they like to hear us suffer I also like to hear them suffer because I like that movie. Like, I like the bad, I like how bad it is. But we do appreciate your support of the show. So we will bleed for all of you <laughs> who end up listening now, to that. Now, speaking of our patrons, Mike, they really do support us. And we have just some great folks joining the Patreon. And we want to shout them out. That's another perk you get. So everybody knows how important they are. So first up, new guy on the block here, Akovio. Thank you so much for joining us. Alex Giannini is a recent subscriber. Jeremy Cathy. We have Nate Clark, Jason Kelly. A lot of new names here. William Bruce West, Mark Lorio, David Fink. Brent Cranfield, Marway, Bruno Cavalcante, David M., Dalibor, J.S., Evan Bryant, Gary Hutcherson, Fernando Pinto, Jeremy Daw, Brian Acosta, Denim Jedi, Mitchell Hall, Lee Markowitz, Stephen Forshaw, and Mark McDonald. He's been there since the beginning. Thank you wow. so much, Mark. Uh, but yeah, so we love our patrons. Thank you for all that you do. But thank you also just for listening to this episode. We're glad that you're part of the community. Remember, if you're interested in participating participating in the geekster comic book month go to the retronetwork.com submit an article think about what you want to do what's your favorite thing about comic book fandom share it with us but until next time keep your books bagged and boarded This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.